love life. Love. This is George G, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful Jennifer Fonderbay. Jennifer, are you ready to do this? I am. All right, let's go. Jennifer is the founder of Day One Ready. It's a consultancy that advises forward-thinking business leaders, owners, and executives on how to prepare for the human capital challenges of M&A. She's the author of Now What? A Survivor's Guide for Thriving Through Mergers and Acquisitions. Jennifer, excited to have you on. Tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, why you do what you do. How long do you have? <laughs> as long as we need. Um, So with thank you, one, for having me on, Uh, you already highlighted the book. Uh, It's a survivor's guide because I went through three separate merger and acquisition deals. uh, And I was a corporate marketing executive at the time. Um, And frankly, George, you can maybe guess from my last name. So I'm half French and my original plan in life was to be ambassador to France. So the fact that I do what I do now, um, I keep saying to my dad, who is the French part uh, of my parents, that I'm just taking a circuitous path to ambassadorship. And I, yeah, you know, it could still be possible. But for about 25 years of my career, I was in advertising and marketing and had reached what I thought was the height of a marketing career, becoming a chief marketing officer. But it was in that capacity that I went through three separate deals. Uh, And these were multi-billion dollar deals. So, uh, you know, as I've come to learn, the bigger the billions, the bigger the bloodbath. But I kept feeling through each of those deals that there had to be a better way to do M&A, where the value that was being sought for the deal actually was achieved uh, where you you didn't lose talent um, you didn't lose productivity you didn't have such a significant drop in morale that the the company had to strive to even get back to zero um, and so it was in that time that I felt I wanted to write a book about how to how to not just survive it but to thrive through it and so uh in in that journey writing that book i interviewed a number of executives uh, about 60 ceos cfos chros middle managers and it was in in that interview time that i repeatedly kept getting asked well what are you doing besides the book uh, to which i would cheekily respond well do you know how hard it is to write a book i was just planning to write a book i was going to go on and be another cmo but uh I thought the question after a while was was relevant, right? I had one CEO in particular say, well, the book is great. Like, this is important. Executives need this. You got to do more to get the book out there. And so that's why you find me doing what I do now, uh, advising, advising business owners, CEOs, their leadership teams, private equity uh, on how to manage what I like to call the people challenges <laughs> of mergers and acquisitions. I love it. I can't help think that there aren't some through lines between being the ambassador to France for the United States of America and helping two companies merge. Well, I do. In fact, actually, I'm very involved with uh, my graduate school, Thunderbird. It's an international business school. I went there specifically because I wanted to be ambassador. This is what I'm going to do. (laughs) Um, Thankfully, I had a really good professor um, in, uh, in marketing research who uh, asked me one day, so what do you plan to do? And I told him I wanted to be ambassador to France. 
And I could see in his eyes, he was looking at me like, yeah, kid, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> you know, and he didn't say it, but I now realize that he's thinking, you know, you've got a better chance of being ambassador to France if you make a lot of money and you support some candidate who goes off to be president and then maybe you'll get it which was true. <laughs> so thankfully he said, well, you know, you should always have a plan B and you, you have a knack for this marketing stuff. You should, you should just consider that. And so uh, thank, thankfully I had that conversation and started my career in advertising uh, at J. Walter Thompson and then Footcote and Belding. So again, um, lucky enough to have been in, you know, major ad agencies on international clients. But you're not the first to say, hmm, well, you could still you could still do it, maybe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the more billions, the more bloodbath or something like that. That certainly makes sense. You know, that means there's probably just a lot more people that are involved in this. And that's that's yeah. that's that's where stuff gets messy. Right. We can sit in a boardroom and talk about all the wonderful synergies and how this is all going to work. But when you actually get you know, face to face and, 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 and roll up our sleeves with the other people that this doesn't always work out. Yeah. And what's interesting. So yes, the, the, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's because there's so many people involved, right? When it's multi-billion dollar deals, uh, a big, a big part of that pursuit in doing that deal is finding efficiencies and redundancies. So layoffs and, and, you know, cutting entire departments, tends to be part of how people think of, of those mergers and acquisitions. But I found in doing the research, I spoke with business owners who were uh, in middle market companies that, that 10 to $1 billion range, and they had the same challenges. Hmm. So people challenges aren't unique to multi-billion dollar deals because it's human nature you're dealing with and it's change and uncertainty that people are facing every time a deal is done. Uh, and so, you know, I say uh, uh, rather jokingly, you know, with uh, with big billion dollar deals, you can have a lot more chaos, but there there's change and uncertainty in every instance. And that's probably true at the top of the organization with the C-suite. And I'm sure that it's true for just regular folks. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's not the and that's that's why I, I frankly I I did the interviews. I wanted to make sure that the experience that I had through three separate deals wasn't unique to me because I I did feel that way at the beginning. I thought, man, you see a different side of people when they're faced with change and uncertainty, uh, and, and I saw that consistently. Um, even though I was on all sides of the equation, I had been acquired. I was part of a, a company that acquired another, um, was then the third one was private equity acquired our company. And in doing those interviews, it became clear to me that uh, you just, how you navigate mergers and acquisitions, no one is going to necessarily help you to do that because they're figuring it out themselves. And that's why I wrote the book. I wanted people to understand here's, here's how to, not just get through it, but but actually find more opportunities uh, because they are there if you know what to expect. And that's the hard part. Um, a friend of mine actually jokingly said I should have called the book what to expect when you're not expecting a merger or an acquisition. That's funny. Know what to expect. So 
I wrote down human capital change management. These these <laughs> these these important buzzwords and massive industries, um, and rooms full of consultants. From my experience and what I've you know sort of just paying attention, we don't know what to expect because we're not communicated to. So when you talk about helping people overcome expected challenges. Like we know that you're going to run into these things. And if you choose to just ignore them and not sk and skip a bunch of steps, it's going to be painful. Right. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's the key. They are expected. You can expect them. Um, it's what frustrates me the most is when, um, in, in the research that I did for the book, uh, there was a, an article in which a CFO was quoted as saying, you know, what doomed the M&A deal was unexpected people challenges. And I think 70% 70, 70 of the of the CFOs, it was a CFO magazine said, yeah, you know, that's it. It's it's I mean, obviously, the the there are other aspects uh, of what can undermine the success of a deal. Right. Typically, the, the valuation was off. It was way bigger than they had anticipated. But the other ones were all people related. Right. Synergies that don't appear um, or aren't as uh, easy to achieve as expected, um, you know, more complicated production integration challenges and then people challenges. So for me, a big part of overcoming that is one writing the book um, and that book is geared towards the person going through it. Here's here's what to expect and how to to navigate it. But I use the book as well when I'm working with executives and their teams to say, here's what, here's what you can't expect. This is what's going to happen to people. They're going to go through stages of grief. Um, for some, it might be significant, right? Because if I've identified with a company for years and now I don't know what that company is and I don't know what it's turning into, I'm more in the loss of that company. Um, and that's, that's not just me, right? That's just statistically proven through through the research I did uh, and that others have done. And it's a, it it leverages Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's description of what someone goes through um, in terms of the stages of grief when they're mourning the, the loss, right? In her case, she was writing about uh, terminally ill patients, but it has applications for many other things. And I applied it to mergers and acquisitions. And then the other part, the other people challenges that people become a different version of themselves. Uh, you know, it's it's what I, I I said at the the beginning. You see a different side of people when they're faced with change and uncertainty. And even if you aren't in a merger and acquisition, your best proof point is think about some of the people you saw during the pandemic, right? Where we were all faced with change and uncertainty. And I suspect you saw a different side of people. People who you thought you really knew act in ways you never expected. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not to judge people. It's just simply to say people when they're afraid can act differently and you need to be prepared for that. Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. That's, that's a wonderful way to sort of, um, uh, think about it is, is our behavior during the pandemic. And obviously with our careers, it's our financial, it, it's our money. So when you mess with people's money, that's a really big deal, but it's also, in a lot of ways, it's it's my identity. This is this is what I do, and so, you know, for for us to for to expect that him that 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 I as a person wouldn't 
be startled by that and caught off guard. Um, I think that's that's pretty wild that that you wouldn't expect that, but it's very interesting for sure, right? Yeah, I mean, I went through it. I'm 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 the the reason I wrote the book is in the first acquisition. So Navtech was a global mapping company, digital mapping company, and. Now maps are ubiquitous. They're on their your phone. They're everywhere. But back then we were we were launching the product globally, and I was the head of B two B marketing globally. Loved that job. I mean, I I want to be ambassador to France, right? And I'm now I'm based in Europe. I'm helping people. We're getting closer. Yeah, it was just amazing, and we were acquired by Nokia uh, in 2008 for nine billion dollars. And I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was smart on Nokia's part to to see that through the phone we weren't just going to connect talking but we would connect through mapping and location-based solutions uh if you have followed nokia at all you can guess that that didn't go well that acquisition wasn't successful but it had such great opportunity and i thought nokia was brilliant in doing so but culturally we came at things very differently naftec was b2b nokia was b2c and uh, as as part of that lesson learned, I I went through exactly what I described to you. I had been the head of B2B marketing globally. I was important in our company. I provided significant value for Nokia. I, who what do you do again? You know, and it was like uh, write these press releases and get them out. And then these press releases, like they would go through umpteen million reviews because they just didn't understand how we did what we did because we were serving clients and customers and they were focused on consumers. And so it was just a a very, um, it was a tough lesson to learn. And by my third acquisition, I was like, oh, this is just how it goes, right? You you know, people don't get what you do necessarily. And so that's why I wanted to write the book to say, here's how you make sure people understand your value and what you can contribute to the company. Because it may not be the role you had before, in fact, they may not even understand the role you had before. It is your duty. If this is a company you still want to work with, and that's a big part of the process, you need to evaluate, is this still what I want to do? Is this company going in a direction that I can get behind? Um, so you need to do that evaluation and then demonstrate your value. So that's, um, you know, for me, that was the the kind of the clarion call. I wanted to help other people be smart about how to figure that out. That makes a ton of sense, and right now we're 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 seeing firsthand uh, two of the largest, most famous companies in 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 the world with Twitter and and now Disney, both going through their 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 own version of upheaval and change. Um, I wrote down honesty and transparency, and it strikes me that as an employee, I would want to know at least as much as I could know from Elon Musk and Bob Iger. Here's where we're going. Here's where, you know, right. why. Here's what you can expect from us. And, you know, get on board or or don't kind of a thing. Yeah. And that's um, I'm really glad you said that, because that is usually one of the biggest mistakes that senior leaders make is the desire to say nothing is changing. Everything is going to stay the same. You know, <laughs> this is, you're I, and they they do it with the intent. It's not malicious intent. Most executives, the the reason that they do is to keep people calm, right? They want people to, hey, I just don't don't leave, don't go. This is nothing's going to change. But the reality is, 
everything's already changed. You've already changed the certainty of my future. You've already changed how I think about my job because the company's changing. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, I, I say to executives, people, it's not change that people resist. What they don't like is uncertainty. So if you have prolonged uncertainty, that's where you run into issues. So we got to make, we got to create as much certainty as possible. But the worst thing you can do is say nothing is changing. And as exactly as you said, I, I coach executives um, and, and their teams to be as transparent as possible. Now, there's certain things you can't share for confidentiality and legal reasons, but there's a lot more that you can and painting a vision for here's what we are doing. This is why these companies are coming together and why both are valued. You need to highlight why both companies are contributing to that vision that you have so that people on in both companies can see a role for themselves and can see how they might contribute. If you exactly, as you said, if you don't have a vision for where this is going, then you're going to evaluate it against, well, do I have a better opportunity somewhere else? And you, you may lose some of the, the really critical talent that you need in order to succeed. It's really, really interesting. I imagine uh, more common than not when when the CEO they say, "No, no, no, nothing's going to change. It, it's it's all going to be fine." That's that's probably just just like an impulse, particularly if 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 if, if they're a parent, like it. No, oh, it's going to be okay. You know, talking right. to their kids. Uh, do you think that that's just sort of an instinctual response? It is, and that's why I highlight it's not it's not to paint. Um, leaders as negative or, you know, misleading because they really do want people to feel okay. There's a story that I I, uh, share in my book um, that I love. Actually, it was a a, a woman who was in customer marketing in her company. And she shared that her boss said to the team, and there was probably about 10 people on the team. Listen, I don't know if they're going to keep us, right? They'd been acquired by a company. They were skilled in understanding the automotive industry, and they were acquired by a company that was focused on telecommunications. And so he thought, listen, we we may be kept because I know they want to get into this, the automotive space, but who knows? He said, the critical thing is don't don't obsess about your title. Don't be focused on your job description and the box that you've been in. Demonstrate how quickly you learn because that customer marketing team was super smart, right? They researched everything. They were always the the group that helped present the statistics at their user groups for customers. Like they were, they were um, tasked with that and, and were always well known for the research. And so he said, we need to demonstrate not the industry we know, but how quickly we learn an industry so that when when they're evaluating different departments, um, they see the critical nature of what we do. And sure enough, she said that more than anything helped them as a team to just stay focused and and no one was let go. They were they were sp- uh, split up for a little while, uh, but she said it was critical and she so appreciated the transparency of her boss to say, listen, I I don't know where this is going to go. I think the vision is 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 an interesting one, and we could contribute. But here's how we're going to make make them see what we do valued. Love it. That makes a ton of sense. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on. 
for coming on. Where can people learn more about you? How can they engage with Day One Ready? And where can they get a copy of Now What? Survivor's Guide for Thriving Through Mergers and Acquisitions. Well, I hang out mostly on LinkedIn. I do a ton on LinkedIn. I share articles. Um, I'm a speaker, so I talk a lot about the different companies that I'm speaking with. So certainly look for me on LinkedIn, um, Jennifer J. Fondreve. And then my website. Uh, my website actually, oddly enough, is loads of fun. Um, I have a personality quiz on there, so you can go and find out who you might be working with in your merger and acquisition, or even you might identify yourself after you take the personality quiz. Um, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, and that's also where I talk about the different personalities. So jenniferjfondrevet.com is where I would say, and you can find uh, now what on uh, on Amazon. Excellent. Well, if you enjoyed this much as I did, show Jennifer your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Find Jennifer on LinkedIn, as well as Jennifer J. Fondreve. There, I think I finally said it correctly. Jennifer, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-J-F-O-N-D-R-E-V-A-Y. Take that personality quiz. Find out a little bit more about yourself and pick up a copy of Now What? on Amazon. And I'll also link that to Thanks again, Jennifer. Thank you. And until next time, remember, do your part by doing your best.